There's a book. Actually, it's a novel in nine volumes, which means I'm never going to read it. And it's called The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, Gentleman, by Lawrence Stern. And in the book, I'm told, the title character, in an attempt to tell his life story, spends two years detailing just the first two days of his life. Now, to be fair, it was probably an eventful two days, right? I mean, there's a big move involved, meets a lot of new people, doctor slaps him, totally unprovoked. And he reckons, sensibly, I'd say, that because he's writing an average of one day's events per year, material is going to accumulate a lot faster than he can write it. And if he keeps writing, as years go by, he's going to be farther and farther from the moment he's writing about. And he's going to die long before he finishes. Clearly. I mean, even if he pulled some Methuselah nonsense and lived to be like a thousand years old, he's still only going to get through the first three years of his life? A little less than that, actually, right? In fact, as noted, the longer he lives, the further from the end he will be. I mean, an editor would help, but short of that, this work ain't getting finished. But what if he lived infinite years? Would that change the outcome? Or would he just eventually end up writing about events that happened infinite years in the past? What happens after infinity? And what other weirdness does infinity present to us? These are the questions we'll be exploring in this episode. Welcome to Science Unlimited, Infinity Paradoxes. Augustine Ryo, professor of philosophy at MIT, said, It is a natural thought that where finitude ends, absurdity begins. And if you listen to the first episode, Infinity Plus One, available now in the same place you found this one, you know that strange and interesting things happen when we deal with infinity. And we call those things paradoxes, just statements or situations that seemingly contradict themselves. And infinity gives us many of these paradoxes. And we talked about a few of them in the last episode, including my all-time favorite, Hilbert's Hotel. But this is way too rich a topic to have included it all in one episode. Which brings us back to our friend, Tristram Shandy, gentleman. Now, when last we left the aspiring autobiographist, he was lamenting the fact that at the rate of writing one day of his life per year, he'll be dead long before he was finished, right? But we asked, what if he lived infinity years? Now, this is the question posed by the late mathematician Alexander Bogomoni on his still active and still awesome website, cutthenot.org. And at first glance, it would seem that Tristan would just have more of his life left unwritten about. An infinity of days, in fact. But Professor Bogomoni disagrees. Basically, he says, choose a day in the life of Tristram Shandy. Any day. His hundredth day of life? Well, that'll be written about in the hundredth year of writing. His thousandth day of life? will be written about in the thousandth year. Now, this is going to lead to some weird storytelling, right? I mean, at some point, Mr. Shandy will get to the day he started writing the book, so he'll be writing about a day he was writing about a day of his life. And then some years after that, he'll be writing about a day he was writing about a day he was writing about a day of his life at infinitum. I mean, nine volumes, it seems like that's happened already. But the point Professor Bogomoni is making is that for whatever day we choose in the life of Mr. Shandy, there's a corresponding year in which that day will be written about, because he'll have infinite years to write. So any day that we can think of 
will be described sooner or later, and no part of his autobiography will remain permanently unwritten. As Professor Bogomoni points out, the number of days in all of time is not greater than the number of years. They both equal infinity, or rather they're both infinite and equal. They're both countable or listable infinities if you listen to the last episode. But this is just the tip of the weirdness iceberg. To show you what I mean, let's take a look at a few more paradoxes. One of the most famous is called Zeno's Paradox. Actually, it's a series of paradoxes. And although you may not recognize the name, I'd say there's a good chance you've heard a version of these before. And basically, the paradoxes question whether or not motion is real, with the most well-known showing that it's mathematically impossible to ever get to whatever destination you're trying to get to. Why? Well, let's say there's a door 10 feet in front of you. Now, to reach the door, you must first reach the halfway point five feet away, right? To travel the remaining five feet, you must first travel two and a half feet to that halfway point, then one and a quarter feet to the next halfway point. I think you see where this is headed. Each halving of the remaining distance will get you closer to the door, but it never quite gets you to the door, does it? And even with infinite halving, there will always be a tiny speck of distance remaining. Then half a speck, then half of that. In effect, you'd need to complete an infinite series of tasks to do it. And clearly no one can do infinite things, right? Now, this is not the most exciting paradox, in part because it has an obvious flaw. Now, we clearly can travel 10 feet and not take an infinite amount of time or steps to do it. But math is supposed to reflect the real world, at least when talking about real-world situations. And this is certainly not indicative of our real-world experience. So an answer was needed that reflects what we know to be true. It turns out there are actually two answers. And here's the mathematical solution. Yes, it is possible to complete infinitely many tasks in a finite amount of time, if the time required to complete successive tasks decreases quickly enough. In other words, why can you reach that door 10 feet away and not take an infinite amount of time to do it? Because with each step, with each journey to the next halfway point, you're also taking half the amount of time to do it. So if that first five feet took five seconds, the next two and a half feet would take two and a half seconds. One and a quarter feet would take one and a quarter seconds, etc. So the amount of time needed to complete the task will add up to a finite amount of time. But think about it. If you add up a half, a quarter, an eighth, a sixteenth, you can keep going. The answer will be less than one. Now that's the mathematical solution. But a simpler solution is the logical one. Why the hell are we dividing the journey into halfway points in the first place? This is not how people walk. But this infinite halving of time in order to create infinite tasks does lead to some more creative paradoxes. And these paradoxes that arise from infinite sequences or tasks are called omega sequence paradoxes. Now, omega is a thing that comes after the list of natural numbers. So if you have a list of items, first, second, third, extending to infinity, omega is the first item after infinity. Now, in the last episode, we spent a considerable amount of time proving that adding one to infinity doesn't change its cardinality, the amount of items in it. So what the hell am I talking about? Omega isn't a cardinal number, like one, two, three. It's an ordinal one, like first, second, third. So it's not an amount. It's the number at the end of the list, 
um, a place in line. A very, very long line. And one example of a more interesting Omega Sequence paradox, I think, is the paradox of Thompson's lamp. Now, Thompson's lamp was given to us in 1954 by James F. Thompson, a British philosopher. And here's how it goes. A mad scientist has a lamp with a button that turns it on and off. Well, I mean, that's how lamps work for the most part. You don't need to be a mad scientist to have a lamp like this. Anyway, at one minute to midnight, the lamp is turned off. And at 30 seconds to midnight, the mad scientist hits the button to turn the lamp on. 15 seconds to midnight, the button is pushed to turn it off. Seven and a half seconds to midnight, it's turned on. You see where this is going, right? With every halving of the time left until midnight, the button is pushed, turning it either on or off. So here's the paradoxical question. At midnight, is the lamp on or off? Let's think about it. For every time the lamp gets turned off before midnight, there's a later time before midnight when it gets turned back on. So it can't be off at midnight. Now you may have already surmised you can give the exact same argument stating the opposite as well, right? That for the same reasons, for every time you turn it on before midnight, there's a later time it's turned back off, the light can't be on at midnight either. So which is it? Well, if you keep having the time, there will always be another time to hit that button. So there will be infinite opportunities to turn the light on as there will be infinite opportunities to turn it off. So the paradox of Thompson's lamp is like asking someone to name the last digit in an infinite sequence. Imagine someone asking you to name the last number, like the last number that exists. It, it just can't be done. So it's impossible to know if the light will be on or off at midnight. Ah, now I get the mad scientist. Another paradox that uses the having of time to make our lives difficult is the paradox of Enchantress and Witch. Now, this is a version of something called a Ross-Littlewood paradox, but I like the visuals in this version better. And it was created by Tetiana Butler, whom I couldn't find much information about uh, other than her website, suitcaseofdreams.net, where I got this. So if anyone listening knows her, please tell her thank you for creating such a cool Omega Sequence paradox. And here's how it goes. An Enchantress appears before you promising to give you an infinite amount of gold coins. All right, right off the bat, sounds like a great deal. The coins will be numerated one to infinity and given in order. Now, one minute before noon, well, here we go again, you will get coins one through 10. A half minute before noon, coins 11 through 20. A third of a minute before noon, coins 21 through 30, etc. So again, we see that the time between coin giveaways will be continuously decreased so that at noon, this giveaway will have happened infinite times, and you'll therefore have infinite gold coins. So you're like, word up, let's do that. I didn't really bring a bag big enough for infinite coins, but we can figure that out later. Maybe the enchantress will be nice enough to hook me up with a bag of holding too. But before the giveaway starts, a witch appears and offers you a deal. The witch will increase your coins tenfold at noon if you agree that they can take one coin every time the Enchantress gives you ten. But the witch wants to take those coins in a very specific way. For the first set of coins, one through ten, the witch takes the coin with the number one. 
For the second set, you get 11 through 20, the witch takes coin number two. For 21 through 30, the witch takes coin number three, and continues like that. Now remember, at noon, the witch will increase whatever you have tenfold. Do you take that deal? Well, how many coins do you have at noon? That'd be the way to answer this, right? Well, if the witch continues to take the coins in order, one, two, three, four, five, six, etc., and there are infinite opportunities for her to take coins, the witch will have all the coins at noon, and you'll have none. So enjoy your ten times zero coins. Now, your reaction, like mine when I first heard this, might be, but there are nine coins for every one the witch takes. I should still have nine times what the witch has, right? And yes, that sounds very logical, but remember, this is a paradox. If it made sense, it wouldn't be a very good paradox. In the last episode, in case you missed it, we made a big deal about ordering sets in a way that we can be sure every item in the set is accounted for. And that's all the witch did. By starting at coin number one and going in numerical order, she made it certain that every coin would be accounted for eventually. And just like Tristram Shandy will eventually write about every day of his infinite life, infinite opportunities to take coins in order will lead to the witch taking all the coins. Rude, right? But wait! The enchantress who offered you the coins in the first place swoops back in for the rescue, and she changes the deal just slightly. And she says that for every ten coins she gives you, the witch will take the first coin in that group. So, for coins 1 through 10, the witch takes number 1. For 11 through 20, the witch takes number 11. For 21 through 30, she takes 21, and so on and so forth. Now, how is this different? It's still one out of every 10, after all, right? But let's take a look at how many coins you'll have at noon. You'll have every coin except numbers 1, 11, 21, 31, etc. Meaning, you'll have infinite coins. Now, the witch, on the other hand, will only have numbers 1, 11, 21, 31, etc., which will also be an infinite amount of coins. Every number with a 1 in the 1's place, of which there are an infinite amount. So, you get your 10 times infinity coins! Yay! Which is still just infinity, the exact amount you would have had if you never messed with that witch in the first place. So, what does this teach us? Other than witches are always demonized in theoretical examples. Well, as Tetiana Butler points out, it shows that infinity minus infinity is undefined, and we can manipulate it to get whatever answer we want. I think it also shows that how you order your set is of utmost importance when dealing with infinite sets. Something learned in episode one, infinity plus one, available now in the same place you found this one. The last Omega Sequence Paradox we'll talk about demonstrates how infinite sequences can cause some unexpected trouble when it comes to what we would consider rational decision-making. This may not be a surprise considering how irrational infinity seems to be, but this is called the Demon's Game. And it's taken from Professor Augustine Rao's course, Paradox and Infinity, available on edX, and it's similar to the Satan's Apple Paradox by Adam Elga, John Hawthorne, and Frank Arnzinius, who are contemporary professors of philosophy. And here's how the demons game goes. There is an infinite group of people, and an evil demon suggests they play a game. So, not a good demon, so you already know he doesn't have these people's best interests at heart. And when prompted by the demon, 
each person will say yes or no. So no question, just yes or no. So for the sake of the paradox, it doesn't really matter what they say. We could easily replace yes and no with stapler and buffalo chip. We're not going to, but you can. Now, if only a finite number of people say yes, everyone will receive as many gold coins as people who say yes. So for example, if only 10 million people say yes, then everyone gets 10 million gold coins each, even the people who said no. So not a bad deal. But should infinitely many people say yes, no one gets anything. Aha! Okay, so this demon is more annoying than evil. There's no threat of eternal damnation or anything. Just the possibility of almost being wealthy, which is irritating, I guess. But that's the situation. Infinite people answering yes or no. If only a finite number of people answer yes, everyone gets gold equal to the amount of people who said yes. But if infinite people answer yes, y'all get nothing. And as you can already guess, the people aren't allowed to talk to each other to plan their responses beforehand, because if there's one thing evil demons will not stand for, it's cheating. So, if you're one of those infinite people, what answer do you give? Yes or no? Stapler or buffalo chip? Now, what I find really interesting about this paradox is that, as Professor Rayo points out, it demonstrates the idea of collective tragedy also called Tragedy of the Commons. And it's the idea that a group will predictably end up in a situation that is suboptimal for every member of the group, even though every member of the group behaves rationally. So by everyone doing the thing that makes perfect sense to do, everyone gets screwed. A collective tragedy is actually an idea born out of theories of economics, but it holds true here as well. And I'm sure we could all think of an example of a community all acting with their own best interests in mind, only to have those decisions work against the best interests of the group. One common example would be traffic, right? Everyone decides driving is the fastest way to get to work, everyone drives, and everyone ends up late because of all the traffic that the collective decision caused. And here's what would be considered the rational thought process in this situation. If there are infinite yeses, then no one gets anything, regardless of what answer I give, right? So my decision of what to say can only make a difference if only finite people say yes, which is completely out of my control. I have no control over what people answer. My one yes or no has absolutely no impact on infinity. Infinity plus one, infinity minus one, they both equal infinity, right? So I'm not going to worry about that. Now, if I say yes, at the very least, everyone gets an additional coin. But if I say no, I've helped no one. I've had no effect. Now, if everyone follows this rational thought process, everyone answers yes, there are infinite yeses, and so everyone gets nothing. Just a whack demon laughing at them, I guess. Now, another thing I find interesting about this scenario is that if the people alternated answers, so like if one person says no, then the next says yes, next says no, and so on, there would be infinitely many people saying no, and there would be infinitely many people saying yes. In fact, with infinite people answering, the most likely scenario seems to be infinite people in both the yes and no camps. There seems little hope that there'd be a finite amount of anything. I don't know if that makes this demon evil, but he's definitely a jerk.
Now, the last paradox we'll look at, though this is by no means an exhaustive list of infinity paradoxes, and I encourage you to look up more of them if you find these interesting. If you don't, why are you still listening to this? But the last one that we're going to address is based on something that we've already discussed and demonstrated in the first episode, titled Infinity Plus One, available now in the same place you found this one, but is to me one of the more like cool, kind of freaky, mind-blowing things I've come across in a Twilight Zone sci-fi kind of way. And just to refresh our memories, in the last episode, we defined a line as a collection of points, and a point as that which has no part. Actually, those are Euclid's definitions, but it means that a line of any length, five inches, five feet, five miles, must contain infinite points. Now that we've recalled that, we're ready for the Banach-Tarski theorem. Now, the Banach-Tarski theorem was developed by Stefan Banach and Alfred Tarski in 1924. And here's what it says. It is possible to take a sphere, decompose it, and reassemble it into two spheres that are equal in size to the original sphere. Basically, you've created a perfect, identical copy without adding any new material. Now, the theorem specifically says that you can do this by splitting the sphere into a finite number of pieces, five to be exact, to create those two spheres identical to the first. Now, we know this is a physical impossibility for two reasons. First, though we may be able to manipulate shapes, we can't add mass. So either the two spheres would each have half the mass of the original, which means they're not identical, or we'd have to say that the spheres have infinite mass, which in the real world would mean that it would be a black hole, would tear space-time, and we're not going to get to that until at least episode three. Second, according to the theorem, you have to cut the original sphere in a specific way that requires infinite precision. But objects are made of atoms, right? And atoms cannot be infinitely divided and, you know, remain atoms. But we haven't let physical reality stop us from having some fun talking about this yet. Why would we start now? So, Banach-Tarski theorem. We can take one sphere, create two spheres identical to the original. Now, based on what we've already discussed, this is simple enough to imagine, right? There are infinite points in a line of any size. So, we could decompose a line of one inch in length and reassemble it into a line that is one mile in length or one trillion miles in length. They all have the same infinity of points. The same would be true then for three-dimensional objects like a sphere. So, you could decompose a sphere to make two spheres equal to the first, or three spheres, or a Russian nesting doll of spheres. Or you could take a small sphere, one that fits in your hand, break it down, and reassemble it into a sphere the size of the sun. I mean, you could probably spend an eternity thinking about all the three-dimensional things you could make from decomposing a sphere. And it's this understanding that prompted William of Ockham in the 14th century to observe, in the whole universe, there are no greater parts than in a bean. Because in a bean, there are infinite parts. I love that line. It kind of captures how incredible and absurd the idea of infinity is, right? Especially when we try to think about it the same way we think about finite amounts, which is the only way we've ever really learned to think about anything, because... In our daily life, why would we need to think about things any other way? I'm going to leave you with a quote from Dr. Paolo de Sia of the University of Padova. And he says this, It is perhaps just this world, this limited experience that suggests the existence of something beyond, of another world that is neither finite nor limited, 
It is precisely the presence of a limit that raises the question and requires a search for what is after, beyond. In the next episode, we'll explore some of what's beyond and take a look at the idea of an infinite universe and the many iterations of a multiverse. But before I go, I want to once again take a moment to thank Professor Agustin Rayo of MIT and Muriwuti Mutar of UC Riverside for generously donating their time to help me with my research, specifically for the first two episodes of this podcast. And once again, you can check out Professor Ryle's course, Paradox and Infinity, on edX, as well as his many awesome, amazing videos on YouTube if you'd like to know more information on this topic. Thanks for listening.